0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee. So without further ado, here he is. If you are new to our church, my name is Dave. And uh, I serve here as lead pastor. And um, recently, we've kicked off a new sermon series on the Gospel of John. And I've been really enriched personally by my reflections and my study for this series. And I think one of the blessings of preaching is you receive way more in the preparation than you're able to give out from the pulpit so if you ever really want to gorge on the word of God, become a preacher. <laughs> what ends up on the cutting room floor stays in your heart, even if you can't give it out in the talks. And I think that's been one of the great gifts to me uh, in getting to do this for a living. This morning, the title of the message is Children of God, but it could just as easily be called the Spirit of Adoption. And, you know, one of the things I love about Harvest is There are so many kids in our church who are adopted. At one point, a full 10% of our children at Harvest were adoptions. That's one out of every 10 kids was chosen to become a son or daughter as an act of grace and love, Um, and not just as a biological inevitability, but we chose these kids to be our children. And it's such a beautiful picture of the way each of us becomes children of God. The passage this morning, I, I, I preached the first message as an overview, an introduction to the book, and an overview of the first 18 verses of John 1, which is commonly referred to as the prologue. It's a synopsis of the whole book in a shortened form. But this morning, I want to zoom in on those verses, John 1, 10 through 13. Here's how those verses read. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, And that last verse I'm going to address in another sermon about our spiritual birth. And so I'm, I'm not going to address that last verse very much this morning. But I want to talk about this idea of adoption. In 1943, psychologist Abraham Maslow published this now famous pyramid in a paper he called A Theory of Human Motivation. And what he proposed in that paper is that all human behavior is driven by a hierarchy of basic needs that define and and push us to do everything that we do. And what's interesting about this is that the bottom two, which are the most common and first priorities, it goes up so that from the bottom is the most basic need that we have. If you don't meet those, all the ones above don't really matter, right? Right? And whether you agree with this theory or not, I think it's interesting to to observe that the bottom two, the need for physiological sustenance and then for safety, those are really just mammalian survival needs. They answer the question, am I still going to be around tomorrow? Am I going to make it? Will I still be breathing in the morning? And those are big questions, and we are driven by a need to make sure that as creatures, We are safe and okay and continuing to exist. But once those creaturely basic needs have been met, it's interesting that Maslow immediately realized, and though it says social, really the way he described it is the next most urgent and pressing need is for love and belonging. For love and belonging. In other words, once you know you're going to be okay as a creature, a mammal, the very next thing that drives all of your acts is a yearning for love and for belonging. And I would add, not just to receive love, but to give love and to have a sense of belonging and to bring others into a belonging. Now, history is full of unexpected stories of people who seemed to have it all. They had power or wealth or beauty or intelligence or athletic prowess. They had it all, and yet they famously crashed and burned because in the midst of having everything, human beings seemed to want on those bottom two levels. They still didn't have love or belonging, and they struggled with a desperate sense of isolation, of being alone, profoundly alone, even though they had everything else. And perhaps some of us understand exactly what that feels like. Maybe we pass through long seasons of our life Where all the creaturely needs were met, but the heart yearned for love and belonging. And it, you don't have to be a scientist or a historian to recognize the truth of this. Every one of us is driven by this need. And even if you have everything else, if you feel unloved or have no one to love, and if you feel that you're always on the outside looking in, it can be devastating. John tells us in these two verses that the pain of rejection is something Jesus understood. We learn early on in the Gospel of John that everything and everyone that was ever made was made through the hand of Christ. That he was with God the Father at the beginning and with the Holy Spirit. And it was through him that everything and every person was created. And so legitimately... And the the language, the Greek behind this almost says it. It's, when it says he came to his own, it, it really connotes property. Like this is something that belongs to him. By right of creation, what I made is mine. I I think that's true, right? I mean, we all know that. If I cook it, it's mine. I I can give it to you. I could serve it to you. But if I made it, it's mine. And Jesus legitimately could say, that all the people of the world, at some level, were his. And he came down to us in a form that was like us, and he lived among us, but the story is that the majority, most, did not recognize him and ultimately rejected him. That's important for us to begin with because we sometimes think we're the only ones who understand the pain of rejection the feeling of being on the outside. I've had that experience multiple times in my life, and it won't be the last time either. I know I'll have the experience again. We will continue over the course of our human lives to have new seasons, new surroundings, new places where we will be the new person, the outsider looking in. We'll never graduate from needing to belong or feeling like we don't. It will be a repeated experience in our lives. Some of us right now in this church, in this room, are experiencing that as I speak, aren't you? You've struggled, you've tried, you have put it out there, but it's really hard to get that place of belonging. And why it's so important to understand that is because we're not the only ones who know this pain. It's so comforting when a person who has authority over you actually gets you. I mean... Uh, just let me speak to the youth for a minute, because I remember when I was younger, one of the frustrations I would have is my parents would try lovingly to give me advice, but they tried to give it in a way that I clearly knew they didn't get how hard it was. I, I remember m- my second semester of freshman year, my parents decided to move. <laughs> that was hard because junior high was hard. After sixth grade, we moved, so I had to go through junior high, the worst period of schooling. As the new kid in the school. And I finally risen to a place of prominence and stature. I had my standing. And in that moment, as I was enjoying high school, my parents said, We're moving. I was like, what? And I remember how hard it was to move to this new school where all the kids were smarter and richer, and just it was a completely different world, and I was so out of place. And you know, I think hell is gonna be like a high school cafeteria. I mean (laughs) it's you just you're standing there with this tray, and you're like, uh, I don't know anybody, and all the tables look full or like they want to be full, and you're just wandering around like dummy, going, I don't know who to sit with. It's so it was so hard, and I would come home and tell my parents, I hate this new school. How could you move us? And you know what parents say things like, if you want to make a friend, you got to be a friend. Just put it out there. Just smile. Go out to anything. I'm like, okay, you make it sound so easy. You don't understand what it feels like to stand in my skin in that place. And so it's frustrating and it's isolating when the person giving you advice or telling you what's the right thing to do seems to have no clue what it feels like to be in your situation. Every parent in the world is guilty of this, including me. I didn't like it when my parents did it, but I do it all the time. I know you're scared, but just do it. Face it. You know, okay, dad. If you hadn't said that, I never would have. We need someone who tells us to do the right thing and yet has walked through the place of pain that we're feeling. Because in that identification, we draw great strength when he says, I know exactly how you feel. One of the things that makes Jesus so attractive to us is that he is not a distant God who tells us from a safe perch how to be human and finite and limited. I love Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase of the Bible in certain places. I don't like it in everything, but certain verses, I feel like he captures the heart of what the words are trying to say. And this is one of those verses, Hebrews 4.15. He says, we don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing, experienced it all, all but the sin. In other words, he came all the way through the human experience with us, including what it feels like to want desperately to be received and yet receive the cold shoulder, to be rejected, to be unacknowledged, unrecognized, unknown. I mean, that that song that Bobby had played for us, it said, you could have saved us in a second, but instead you sent a child. And I think about even the, the factual historical truth of this verse, that he was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not recognize him. For 30 years, the Son of God lived an anonymous life in a small town in the Middle East. No one knew him. No one heard of him. He just grew up like any other guy And then all of a sudden, he rose to prominence. But for 30 years, he lived among us as a nobody. There's nothing written about that period that's reliable. He knows what it feels like to be marginalized, to be overlooked, to be underestimated, to not be included. He understands it all. And so when he speaks to us, He speaks to us not just from a position of authority, but from a position of identifying. And the good news is that not everybody rejected him. In every era of history, against all odds, there have always been people who received God, who still believed even when it was not popular to believe or didn't make any sense to believe. And so John acknowledges there were some who did receive him And who believed in his name. Now, I I know that when we hear those words, they sound kind of passive or casual. The words receive and believe have become kind of cheap in our culture. But those words, as John uses them, are not as casual as they sound at first. When we receive Jesus, that's a very odd language. Uh, you know, have you ever heard somebody say, have you received Jesus? And receiving just sounds kind of like you just open your hand and someone scoops you some potatoes on your plate, just, I receive it. It's a very passive, someone gives, I get. But that's not what the Greek word standing behind that word receive indicates. It carries this, it paints this vivid picture of grasping onto or taking hold of. So when we receive Jesus, it's not like going, that sounds pretty good, I'll take it. We receive Jesus the way a drowning person receives a life preserver. If you're going under and someone throws that life ring out to you, you don't just be like, hey, thanks, man. It's great. You cling to it. It's your life. You let go and you lose everything. We don't receive Jesus with a light touch. We receive him with this desperate grip. I have to hold on to you because you're all I have. And if that doesn't describe the way you hold on to Jesus, then there's a lot more for you to experience in this journey of knowing Jesus. Because that's the only way that we can biblically truly receive Jesus. It's not an agreement with a culture, an ethic, a way of life. It's not a fondness for a book or a body of truth. To receive Jesus is to cling to him knowing there is no life except through him. The way a drowning person receives a life preserver. And when it says we believe in his name, it's not, for for us today, belief is just mental agreement. It's something intellectual. Okay, I believe that. But there's a kind of belief that's easy and a kind of belief that is consuming. And when we believe in Jesus, we believe in Jesus the way a person jumping out of a plane believes in the parachute. Do you get that? See, uh, if if I ever go skydiving, I won't be the one who packs my own chute. (laughs) Not until maybe my thousandth dive, because I just don't trust myself. My friend tried to teach me how to fix and replace my own brakes in my car. And I watched him do it, and I was like, I'm not dumb. I think I could do that, but I won't do that, because brakes are kind of mission critical. If I get anything wrong, I'm going to die, driving that car, so even though I could do it, I won't do it, because I, I just don't trust myself enough. That's the nature of real trust. You could say you trust something, but it's when you put your life on the line that real trust is demonstrated. And that's why I won't ever do electrical in my house, and I'll never work on my brakes. And if I were a surgeon, I'd never do surgery on my loved ones. I just don't trust myself. So who do you trust at that level? Because when we say, I receive Jesus and I believe Jesus, if those words roll off the tongue casually, there's a very good chance you missed something really important about the nature of this relationship we have with Jesus. Receiving Jesus and believing Jesus are not casual things at all. They are encompassing, all encompassing. They wrap up everything in that relationship. That receiving and that believing is with a life attached to it. And for those who received and believed Jesus in this way, what John says, the great news is, in response to that faith, God gives those people the right to become his children. One of the most beautiful themes in all of Scripture, writing throughout the New Testament, is this concept of adoption. And the beauty of adoption is that whereas natural birth is an act followed by a biological inevitability, adoption is driven by an act of love and choice. That's not to say that our biological children are not loved or sought after, but when you declare a stranger to become your family, that is one of the most powerful gifts of love you can extend to another human being. It's a powerful idea that you were once an outsider to me, and by my invitation and choice, I have made you an insider. And not just a small insider, the ultimate insider. You went from being a stranger to being my family. I think that's what we all long for. Family has become one of those powerful words, touchstones in our culture. Vin Diesel sure understands family. Just watch The Fast and the Furious. I know people who are just hooked on those movies, even if you don't think they're good movies. But one of the things you always associate is, it's family, you know. Family is like a sacred, it's Vin Diesel's religion. But I think because it touches on something, there is such an epidemic of isolation and not belonging. And if that's the highest need we have beyond creaturely survival, is we need to desperately be loved and belong. Yet so many people experience none of that in their family of origin. Their family of origin was a painful place of rejection and isolation, of abandonment, betrayal. It's a hard thing when the person who's supposed to take care of you is only taking care of themselves or other people. Maybe they couldn't. Maybe they were so broken But regardless, it doesn't soften the pain in our hearts. And so this idea of family has become such a powerful touchstone in our culture. And the beauty of adoption is God says, every last one of you were outsiders to me. My natural family was me, myself, and I, the Trinity. (laughs) He had the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for time eternal past and time eternal future. They had each other. That was the family. And yet, in an act of grace, he opened that family up to others. He chose and declared those who received him and believed in him to be his children. And when it says he gave the right, that's a powerful idea. See, many biological children come into the world unwanted. Every adopted child is wanted and pursued is sought after at a great expense, with great effort. That's a wonder to me. Plenty of kids get born in the hospital unwanted, but adopted kids are all pursued. And that speaks to the way that God sees and loves and reaches after us. Please understand, I'm not trying to downplay the cherishing, loving heart we feel towards our biological children. I got four of them, and I dig them a lot. I love them. But there's something really powerful in this picture of adoption that helps us understand how God actually feels towards us. Here's a truth that you have to think about. Every one of us is God's creation, but not everybody is God's child. Do you understand that? Everybody is God's creation, but not everybody is God's child. And I'm not making that up. John is saying it to us. Some people, all of us start out not his children, and some through this receiving and believing are given this right to become something they weren't. We all start out as creation but it is through the receiving and the believing and this gift of adoption that we become something we weren't. We become the children of God. That's not an inalienable right. We are not all God's children just because we're homo sapiens. And that's something that's really important because we have this idea that God loves everyone. Of course he does, but not everyone belongs to him at that depth. I love all people at some general level. Do you get that? I think you do too. Most of us are not sociopaths or psychopaths. If you ask, do you love people? We say, yeah. I mean, if I saw someone hurting, I would do what I could. But if I saw my family hurting, I wouldn't just do what I could. I would do everything. And I'd like to think I would lay down my life for all of you. But I think about that one a little bit. Because for my family, I'll be honest, for my family, I wouldn't even think. it, It would skip the cerebral cortex, and go straight to lizard brain. Family, I'm dying right now. Because me and Vin Diesel, we got it like that. Like, we, we get it. That's sacred. I don't, I don't even have to process that one. My wife needs both of my kidneys. I'm going to die. That's okay. You just pee away all your life with my kidneys. They're yours. I don't even have to think about the calculus of that one. And that's an amazing thing. That that's what God declares us to be to him. We become His family. And we've got to stop speaking sloppily as though God cares and, and acts equally for all the humans in the world. There is something made accessible, offered freely to everyone, but not everyone has responded to that. And as in every relationship, It takes two to tango. I could love you with all my heart. If you don't love me back, we won't have a relationship. I will just be a frustrated person in love. That's the way every relationship works. It isn't just about somebody loving everyone, but that response back forms the relationship. And not everyone in this world who is created by God has made that response to him, which is why evangelism matters which is why we can't just engage in social activism. We need people to know that it is only through Jesus Christ that we are given the right to become the family of God. And that matters supremely. It is not a blanket gift given to all humanity. It is a precious gift given at great cost, and we must receive it and cling to it like it's our life. What's interesting is that we have such a desperate need to belong, but that is not a right that can be demanded and taken. It has to be given to us. You might look at a group of friends at your company or at your school and so badly wish you could be a part of that group, right? Do you remember what that was like in school? You're like, I would see these cool kids... I was like, oh, I wish I could be like their friend. They they just seem like their weekends are longer and better, and they they talk about they come back from winter break. They're like, oh yeah, we were just in Aspen skiing all winter. I'm like, oh, I was in my house <laughs> watching cartoons, and so you want so badly to be a part of that group, but you realize. That I can't demand it. I can't stand outside the group and go, you guys are so mean. I want to be your friend so bad. And I demand that you include me. Try that sometimes. See how far they get you. They'll be like, weirdo. and they'll, they'll turn their backs on you. You can't demand belonging. There may be a group of men or women you want so bad. You might, you might be a single person desperately in love with another person thinking the fierceness of my love for you should in the universe shift something. It should make you love me back just by the sheer force of will because I love you so much. And if just the force of my love could turn your heart, I think it would have already. But that's the helplessness of love. Is even though you feel it, you can't demand it to be reciprocated. Belonging is a right that is given. It's not demanded and taken. We all want to belong, but we can't force our way into belonging. It's always the gift of grace from the insider to the outsider. Someone must bring you in. That's the way it's always worked. Belonging is the power granted to those who already belong. It is the job of the belongers to reach, extend a hand out to reach out to those who don't belong, because that's the power of being on the inside is we have access as the gateway between the outside and the inside. Romans eight fifteen, um, which Audrey read for us this morning, we read together. Verse fifteen of that passage speaks about the spirit of adoption. What it's what he says in Romans eight fifteen is that when God adopted us, He didn't just change our status. We are not just now legally His children, but He uses the word that we now can call Him. Abba. Abba is not a Swedish pop group from the 80s. It is, but it's not. I don't know why they call themselves Abba. It's such a creepy, weird thing if you think about it. But Abba is the Hebrew or Aramaic word for it's the closest you can get to daddy, papa, or in Korean, it sounds very similar, appa. Appa is the informal way a child would talk to his daddy, and Abuji is the way you would say father. But you don't bow and say "Appa." you hug and say Abba. Abba is the way you speak to someone who is your loving father. What just happened did I do something bad? Sorry. I apologize. I'm gonna put this down. So that's the beauty, is when he adopts us, he doesn't just change our legal status and change our last name, he invites us into this new kind of intimacy. We had no rightful claim to belong to God, and then he chose us, pursued us, invited us, and our inclusion in his family is the gift of kindness from him to us. Though many of us rejected him, he accepted us. So even when we receive him, what we're receiving is his acceptance of us. Think about it at some point. Blow your mind. See, God only has one natural born child. His name is Jesus. Every last one of the rest of us is an adopted kid. And I remember reading this book on adoption and the woman writing it was adopted and her friend said, you know what, I'm adopted too. And she felt a little miffed. Like, no, you weren't. Well, theologically, the Bible tells me we're all adopted. She goes, yeah, it's not really, you don't get it. And she felt very offended that someone was trying to horn their way into her life-defining experience. But by the end of the first chapter, she goes, my friend was right. (laughs) It's true. Every last one of us are the adopted child of God, every one of us. That's how we became his. And if that's the way our journey with God started, if every one of us was an outsider brought in through the gift of kindness through adoption, it has to have some practical implications on how we relate to the people around us. And I want to finish this talk with a few brief words about the practical implications for us of the spirit of adoption at several levels. And the first is the personal level. I love this picture. Just, when I see brothers or sisters just loving each other, I think one of the most heartwarming things for any parent is to see siblings love each other. That's one of the great hopes and worries that we have, is will you be there for each other when we are gone? And when you see one of your children take care of another one of your children, it is the most comforting inspiring, heartwarming thing you can see. Some of us, we work the least hard at the relationships that are closest to us. We just presume, well, where are you going to go? You're stuck with me.
1: We're married,
0: we're blood, so you can't run. Just ask Vin, We're, we're family, we're bound forever, crazy glued to each other. And because we have this inseparable bond, we neglect most the people closest to us so much of the time. And we presume there's connection, but we don't really work at it, and so we're sometimes more intimate with the mailman or the telemarketer than we are with our own families. And here's the truth. There may be people very close to you who don't feel like they belong to you. And it's important that we reflect on that. I know we've served them, we've sacrificed for them, but this is not an economic transaction. Belonging is not about how much I did for you. It's who I am to you. It's how I feel for you. Do you understand that that matters so much? No child is warmed in their heart by saying, you know how much I sacrificed for you, how much I did for you, how much I served you? Thanks. I'm going to grow up and pay for all that someday. (laughs) But I can't pay for love. That's something you have to give me. I feel like I don't belong to you. There are people who are married and feel they don't belong to their mate. There are children who don't feel like they belong to their parents. There are friends who have had long histories but have drifted apart and don't feel like they belong to each other. And what I'm asking you to think about this week prayerfully is are there people right in front of you at a personal level for whom out of the spirit of adoption you have to extend a hand of invitation and inclusion and embrace. You have to say to them, I know we're bound together, but I want to belong to each other. I want to reach out to you and say that your heart matters to me. I'm not going to just serve you. I'm not going to just provide for you, sacrifice for you. I'm going to love you and draw your heart into my heart. I want you to know we belong to each other. There's another level, the organizational level. And this might be church. It might be a club you're a part of. It might be a, a company that you work for, or a neighborhood. But there's something about this beautiful story of adoption that each one of us has in our history that should drive the way we interact with other people and any community I find myself in. And here's the general rule. If by the grace of God you have become the insider in any circle and you are a follower of Jesus, then one of the impulses that must beat in our hearts is the yearning to include and invite others into the inside. That has to be a part of it because every one of us was once an outsider and we became an insider through a gift of kindness. There isn't one of us who demanded our way into the family of God. It was granted, extended to us as a gift. I think Christians should be the most inviting and inclusive people on earth. And I hope that sinks in a little bit. At every community level that you feel you're part of a group, if you are a follower of Jesus, we should be the most inviting open-hearted, invitational, inclusive people on this planet. People should say of us, "Thank God there's a Christian in that group. I might have half a chance of working my way in because there's somebody who understands what it feels like to go from the outside to the inside." This is our heart. When you see the new person uncomfortably squirming in their seat at church and you're like, "Oh, I don't know them," and there's my good friend who I do know so well, the heart of inclusion, the spirit of adoption is that I see someone on the outside and my yearning is to draw them to the inside. I want every non-family member to become a member of my family. That's the heart that Jesus produces in us through the spirit of adoption. We will, over the course of our lives, experience dozens of adoptions. Every one of us. You go from seeds into youth group, it's an adoption, isn't it? You go from one company to another, it's an adoption. You move from one school to another, from one town to another, from one church to another. Life is a long series of adoptions. And the difference makers are the insiders who see the plight of the outsider and use their status to invite you in, not to push you out. Christians should never be the ones who build walls and exclude others. No matter what the rules or the laws may be, the heart of the Christian is the heart of adoption because that's the spirit of our Father. That's the only way we can say we have a Father in heaven is the spirit of adoption. Is I always want the non-family member to be in my family. And once you're in my family, we are family For life. Now, I would be irresponsible if I didn't say this last level. I've talked about the personal level and the community or organizational level. I have to say something about the national level. Thank you, Alan. I I had a conversation with Alan this past week, and he said something that just stayed with me, is that if Jesus were on the earth today, this is where he'd be. he'd be hanging right out there at the border and he would be agitated and he would not be okay. I need you to understand something. What I'm about to say is risky and it is not a political statement. It is born out of the spirit of adoption which is every last one of our stories if we are in Christ. Our spiritual heritage is that we were once the strangers to God who became his family. We crossed a great divide we could not have horned our way into. There's no way to buy your way into this belonging. It is extended as a gift of grace. Walls are torn down. A way is made forward for us so that we could become a part of something we were once not a part of. That is our story if we are in Christ. And no matter what you feel about politics or policy, The struggle of our hearts, the impulse of our hearts, must always be a spirit of inclusion and invitation, not of exclusion. That cannot be our hearts. The heart of God for the foreigner is well-established in Scripture. It runs all the way back to the law of Moses. There are so many examples. Let me just read you a couple. Look at Deuteronomy 10, 18 to 19. God ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing. So you too, as the people of God, must show love to foreigners. For you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. Look at Leviticus nineteen thirty-three to 34. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I understand that there are policies and laws in place, and there is a, a legal way and a not legal way to become a part of this country. What I am saying is not a policy statement, but before immigration was ever a political issue, it was a moral and spiritual one. Every one of us is a spiritual immigrant naturalized into the kingdom of God through its spirit of adoption, of invitation, inclusion. And if we believe that the laws of our land exclude those who yearn to become a part, then we have to work to change those laws because the spirit of the people of God must always be. I'm not saying we can change everything. The government of the United States is not a Christ-following government, but Christ-followers permeate and fill this land. And whatever you feel about the politics of this issue, know this, the heart of Christ in us is always going to be a heart of adoption, of invitation, of embrace and inclusion. That is what it means to be a Christ-follower. And it breaks my heart to think that there are people whose lives are so difficult they had to leave the home they love to try to improve their fortune somewhere else. This is not their home. I wouldn't want to leave this country unless I had to. This is my home. And if anything compelled me to move, I would be helpless unless I were invited in as a stranger in a strange land by those who already lived there. What is it like to come to a place where you don't belong and be told you will never belong? Would any of us want that, regardless of our politics, at a personal level? Would you want your children to ever experience that anywhere in this world? I'm so tired of the political conversation and the debate in this country. Everyone's shouting, no one listens. But listen to the heart of God because if you are a Christian, this is not a Republican or Democrat issue. It is the heart of God beating in us that says if we close out others, if we raise walls and fences, if we tell people you don't belong, you're not welcome, that is not the heart of God for anyone. And we've got to struggle in the midst of a broken country to think about how Christ in us informs the way we feel and talk and debate about any issue in the public sector. We don't have to be of the same political party, but we have to be of the same kingdom. And our hearts have to reflect the heart of Jesus Christ and of our Heavenly Father. And let me just say this. If that spirit of adoption moves you, compels you to be an activist, God bless you, Work for change. But I also want to charge you with a more personal, and circle back to the personal level, there are people in this country right next door to you who don't belong. Don't be militant and vocal about the oppressed a thousand miles away and neglect the stranger and the foreigner living next door. The person whose food smells weird and seeps over into your townhouse the people who are very unfriendly because they're scared to death of their neighbors, the person that's a weirdo in the cube, three cubes down, who no one wants to talk to, no one ever asks to lunch. The spirit of inclusion is not just a spirit of self-righteous anger, but of a heart that in every level says, you are on the outside, God help me, whatever leverage I have as an insider, I will give it as a gift to you. You will come to the inside if I can help it. Because that's what God did for me. That's the heart of inclusion. I'm so grateful when I read the stories of white people during the civil rights struggle who crossed lines, who alienated friends to say to black America, I see you, I love you. And that's not because they're superior, because they, in in that particular context of history, had power and they used it for inclusion rather than exclusion. Isn't that the spirit of Christ in us? And you can argue with me that I shouldn't say anything political from the pulpit. I'm not speaking about politics right now. There are political implications, to be sure. I'm just going to tell you right now I didn't vote for either presidential candidate, okay? I'm so disillusioned right now. But I believe in Jesus. And I believe that he's going to make a difference in this country. I don't trust either party to save us anymore. But Jesus saves. And if his people will have a broken heart and will be like him, I think a lot is going to get fixed. Washington cannot stop heaven any more than Jerusalem or Berlin or Paris or Cairo, Memphis. None of those places could stop the kingdom of heaven when God was on the roll. And that's our hope, isn't it? And everything we do, every interaction, every relationship, must be driven by this spirit of embrace and adoption and inclusion and invitation. May God do this and be glorified. I want to invite the praise team to return to the front, and I want to just lead us in prayer. Colleague joked that I'm probably going to lead to our churches losing our nonprofit status. I don't care. I feel like we have to start engaging in some of the things that's ripping everything apart. But we can't engage it coming from the right or the left, we have to come from above. There are so many people in our world who feel shut up. Some of those people are very close to you, and some are very far. But what drives the human heart is a need to belong. And we are restless until we find it. And God says that where I am, there is home, there is family, there is belonging everyone is invited, everyone, if you would only receive that invitation. Maybe you've gone to church a long time, but you've never accepted that simple invitation to become a part of his family and to have all the rights that come with that. You can do that right now, this morning, by simply receiving and believing that that promise is real and that he'll keep his word. And if that is already your story, your testimony, then may God impress upon you to be one who opens your heart and your arms to everyone who finds themselves on the outside looking in. May that break your heart to see a student on the fringes of the school, a newcomer on the fringes of the church, outcast at your company and the foreigner at our gates so let's spend a moment or two just praying to God listening for his voice and then we'll sing one last song and we'll close our worship service thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church